Thanks, Steve. Thanks for making me sound like the beast from the East, because that's where I've come from. <laughs> uh, and uh, great to be with you this morning. Particularly grateful that uh, I'm preaching this week and not last week, because it's 50p cheaper this week, I've discovered. And uh, I only had £2 on me, so it's just as well I came this week and not last week. Uh, but really good, to, really good to be with you and uh, appreciate the invitation to uh, serve you through proclaiming the Word of God this morning. So uh, if you have your mobile phones, you might like to turn to <laughs> Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to take a few verses from this chapter. This particular letter was written by Paul from prison. Traditionally, it's been thought it was from Rome, although... Um, most modern commentators think it was probably actually from Ephesus that uh, uh, Paul wrote. He was probably in prison for a time in Ephesus. We know he had a bad time in Ephesus, although he also had a very good time. Uh, but he had persecution, and it was probably during that period of persecution in Ephesus that he actually uh, wrote to the Philippian church. Now, the Philippian church was the first church that Paul had planted in Europe, so it's significant in that sense, and Paul felt a very close link with this church, uh, partly because this church was a kind of partner with him in his mission, and Paul felt that very much. But also this church was one that supported him financially. And really that's a, a big reason for Paul uh, writing this particular letter. He wants to say thank you uh, to this church for a, a gift of money that they had sent to him. So he, he makes some typical opening greetings, and then in verse 3, he gets into the content of the letter as he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. <clears throat> God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, the thing that's really caught my attention in these verses is the re remarkable way in which these verses actually address four major concerns of our human condition. Uh, and these uh, concerns are joy, security, love, and purpose. And all of these are key issues in our lives. They're big issues. And uh, these are all covered here in these few verses. So we're going to look at these uh, four big issues this morning. First of all, I want us to look at the issue of joy. Now, I think it's undeniable that people want to be happy. Uh, that's pretty obvious. Um, and you've only got to think of the way that people pitch up at football matches, I'm sure, because they want to joy. Uh, enjoy the, the sport and be caught up in that and 
hopefully the joy of their team winning the match. We think of things like music festivals, where obviously people go to, to enjoy themselves, to feel happy. There is something in us that uh, uh, really makes us want to feel happy. And Paul prays for this church in verses 3 to 5, as indeed Paul often says to his churches that he prays for them. He, he, he says that to Rome, he says it to Corinth, he says it to Ephesus, he says it to Colossae, he says it to Thessalonica, but also he says to the church at Philippi, I pray for you. But for this church at Philippi, he mentions that he prays with joy. And you see that there in verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And you probably know that Philippians is famous for being the letter or the epistle of joy. He speaks about it a great deal in this epistle. In fact, 16 times in just four chapters, Paul speaks about joy or about rejoicing. And so typically in chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, Further, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And indeed he does. He keeps telling them to rejoice. So you get down to chapter 4 and to verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. I mean, by this time you're thinking of saying, yes, Paul, we've got hold of it by now, all right? What Paul wants us to do is to rejoice. But Paul says he brings out that note of rejoicing and joy in his prayers for the Philippian church. He says, I always pray for you with joy. I want to point out that actually this is quite significant because so much of our praying is petition or it's asking uh, God for things. And when we ask God for things, when we petition him, it's very easy to get a bit intense about it, sometimes even perhaps a bit grim. Oh, God, please give us this. Oh, Lord, please do this for us. We, we can build in some quite uh, strong intensity into our praying and petition and asking. But Paul says he always prays for this church at Philippi with joy. And interestingly, of course, Jesus himself associates prayer and indeed specifically petition with joy. Uh, so in John 16, verse 24, Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be great. So when you come to the prayer meeting this week, anticipate that you're going to get some joy um, because you ask, you receive, and your joy will be great. But it's also this note of joy, even there in the great high priestly prayer, as we call it, of Jesus, which you find in John chapter 17. Now, this is particularly significant because of the context. Uh, Jesus is, uh, is praying in the context of having celebrated what we call the Last Supper with his disciples. He's about to enter into Gethsemane. He's going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be arrested. In that one night, he will be put on six trials. And then eventually, he, of course, is going to be led out to the cross. All that's going to happen in the next few hours. And it's within that context that Jesus prays. And John 17 is a record of what he actually says. Now, I've tended to think over the years that this prayer of Jesus must have been actually quite tense, even very tense. If you consider the context Jesus was praying in, surely it was a very tense time. And yet, in the middle 
of this prayer is quite extraordinary. And it's there in verse 13, Jesus says this, I'm coming to you now, Father, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, that's the disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. Now you think of all that Jesus is about to go through. And as he's praying, what does he pray for his disciples? He prays that they will have a full measure of joy. Against a background of betrayal and arrest and flogging and crucifixion, above all, what Jesus is praying for his disciples is this full measure of joy. And so I want to suggest to you it's no exaggeration that Christ desires for us to be wonderfully, deliriously happy, to have a full measure of joy. And that's what Paul, of course, is uh, saying again and again in Philippians, rejoice, I say it again, rejoice. And indeed, we know there were rejoicing churches. There's a wonderful verse that I've quoted thousands of times, I should think, in my ministry, in 1 Peter <coughs> chapter 1, verse 8, where the uh, writer, the Apostle Peter, says, though you have not seen him, though you've not seen Christ, you love him. And even though uh, you believe, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, the, the context of this church was a context of suffering and of persecution. Peter was writing to a church that, that's facing persecution. That was their, their context. The situation for these uh, saints in this church was they hadn't seen Christ. That's like us. We haven't physically seen Christ. The position of these people was that they were believers in Jesus Christ. And the result of that was that they were filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. What have you ever thought about that verse? In a way, it's quite a strange translation to speak about inexpressible joy. And we need to understand, it doesn't mean you can't express it. What it means is you can't express it enough. Uh, you ever notice these uh, pictures that uh, occur in, in newsreels, news, uh, news broadcasts, uh, about the time that uh, the A-levels usually come out and usually find the cameras go into a school. And what I've noticed is what they do is they find a bunch of pretty girls with ponytails and they, they fasten on them while they open up their A-level results and they all kind of bounce up and down and the ponytails go waving all, all in the air. And you sense that there is an inexpressible joy because of the results. Not that they can't express it, but they can't express it enough. And uh, you sometimes find that with people who pass driving tests. You know, they come out past and there's a kind of inexpressible joy, meaning they can't express it enough. Now, Jesus' prayer here is that we will have a full measure of joy. When we know we are forgiven, when we know that we're reconciled to God, when we know that we've got eternity in glory, when we know that we're covered by the sovereign will of God, when we know that we're united to Christ, so that what is true of Jesus is true for us, that he died, so we've died in him, he's risen, we rise in him, then the Christian life must be surely a life of joy. You know what our problem is? Present troubles interfere with our joy. So my friends, let your joy interfere with your troubles. Actually, that's what the Apostle Paul does. 
In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, he says, for our light and momentary troubles. So he acknowledges the troubles, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And Paul says, yeah, I've got troubles. And actually, by our standard, they were hardly light or momentary. But Paul is saying, I've got troubles, but actually, that's achieving something for me, an eternal glory. And Paul is able to rejoice, therefore, even in the greatest troubles and difficulties. So that's one big issue, the issue of joy. The second big issue is that of security. Now, I've been in pastoral ministry for nearly 50 years, and I would say that the question that I've been asked most over the 50 years that I've been in pastoral ministry is this, can I lose my salvation? I've been asked that question hundreds and hundreds of times in different ways. So security, I know, is a big issue for us. Where there is an answer to this question, can I lose my salvation, it's here in verse 6, where Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, words, as we know, can change their meaning. And I want, to be, want us to be a bit careful in handling this verse, because Paul speaks about being confident of this. I wonder what you hear, really hear, when Paul says being confident of this. Because I think very often these days, people use the word confident to express a degree of doubt. You see, you get a politician who's coming up to an election, and he will say, I am confident I'm going to win this election. And you know deep down he's not that confident at all. But they have to project this kind of confidence. Or you have a, a family member or a friend, say, who's a, about to take an exam, maybe, and they're, they're really worried about this exam. And what you do as a, a family member or a friend, you say to them, I'm confident that you'll get through this exam. What you're really saying is, I hope you'll get through this exam. There is a degree of doubt in there that's kind of crept into the word confidence. And so when Paul says, I'm confident of this, we need to be careful. What are we hearing? And I want to suggest what Paul is saying is, I am totally certain. It rather echoes to me 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know that if the earthly tent we're living is dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That, says Paul, is what I know. And when Paul says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion, he's saying, I know this. I'm confident. I'm certain of this. So in the light of that, if we ask the question, can we lose salvation, this verse is saying, no, we cannot lose salvation. Or if you turn it round positively, and if you use the expression, is it once saved, always saved, then this verse is answering positively, yes, it is once saved, always saved. But I know from my pastoral ministry that people struggle with this at times. And people can say things like, well, once saved, always saved is not a phrase that you'll find in the Bible. And that's true. But then we do use words and phrases that summarize what we read in the Bible and become important to us, although the word or phrase itself is not in the Bible. So the word Trinity 
is a hugely important word to us. So um, we were singing about the Trinity, of course, in that last song, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the word Trinity describes something that is in the Bible. It summarizes it. And so once saved, always saved, can summarize what is there in the Bible. And then people uh, speak anecdotally, and they say, well, I knew this guy, and he certainly looked saved. Look, I, I can tell you what he did, and I can, I can recall how he spoke. He certainly looked saved, but if you look at him now, he doesn't look saved at all, the way he's behaving, what's happened. And so surely that person has lost their salvation. Or you get people say, but what about Hebrews 6? And it's always Hebrews 6. And some challenging verses in Hebrews chapter 6. Now, I know you've got to look at these issues. I'm not denying that. And other times I have looked into those issues in some detail. But I still want to say, on the basis of this verse, I want to argue for the confidence in the security of our salvation. For this reason, because of the character of God. And that's what you see in this verse. God began a good work in you. That's what Paul says. And the good work, all are agreed, is salvation. So it is God and God's initiative that you have salvation. He has begun a good work in you, and he will carry it on to completion. My friends, the character of God demands this. What God has started, he will finish. Your salvation is initiated by God. What he has started, his character demands, he will finish. You didn't give yourself eternal life. God gave that to you. And if God has given it to you, he cannot take away what he has already given to you eternally. That would be inconceivable. And it says here, it's until the day of Jesus Christ, which means the eternal age when everything is eternal. I really want to kind of ram this home to you a bit. In a way, what I'm trying to say to you this morning is that the security of salvation is more than this verse. You see, you can, you can read the verse, you can repeat the verse, you can make it a kind of mantra, but in a way, it's not just a question of knowing and repeating this verse. It's more than this verse, because what this verse is doing is pointing to the character of God. And it's saying, we know this, we're confident of this. If God starts something, his character demands that he will finish it. If God began a work of salvation in your life, he will complete it. That is our confidence, and that was your confidence of the Apostle Paul. Just let me try and help you for a moment to just to keep this sense of security, because I know many Christians struggle in this area, and they wonder and they question. I want to try and help you to keep this sense of security. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, we had the famous John Piper over to do a conference in the Brighton Church. I was an elder then at the church in Brighton. It was hosted in our church, and uh, John Piper uh, was invited by Terry Berger to come and speak for a couple of days in the centre that we had in Brighton. And uh, uh, John Piper, of course, being uh, internationally famous, drew, I should think, just about every New Frontiers leader there was, and so the place was packed out uh, to hear him speak. Now, John Piper 
would be known as a Calvinist, uh, a strongly reformed, use all the theological terms. It means that he would absolutely believe in once saved, always saved, and would believe that very strongly. And yet, during the two days of that conference, there are a number of things that he said that actually caused guys in the conference there to wonder, is John Piper actually secure about salvation? There was some real doubt about it because of certain things he said. Now, I was trying to listen very carefully to what John Piper was arguing. I, became, I came to a position where I realized that John Piper's approach is difficult, is, sorry, not difficult, is different to the approach that we very often make. I think it's true to say that in our churches, and I think this runs very, very strongly actually through New Frontiers churches, we treat the subject of once saved, always saved as a debate which we've got to win. And so, you know, can we, can we put up an argument that convinces us about this person who looks saved and now looks unsaved? Can we handle Hebrews chapter 6 and some other challenging verses? In other words, what we actually try to do is to win the debate on the issue. John Piper's approach was different. John Piper was actually saying, concerning salvation, if you want security of salvation, live the life. And interestingly, that is also a biblical position. Because in 2 Peter 1.10, Peter says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Now, if we're called of God, and if we're elected by God, it's sure. But the, the apostle says, make it sure. Make every effort to make your calling and election sure. In other words, live the life. So once saved, always saved, it's not a phrase to produce passivity within us let alone to produce sin. But actually, we need to live the life, and that will help us with our sense of security. Let's pick up the, the third issue, which is that of love. And every one of us here, we all want to be loved. Now, we're looking here at verses 7 to 8, and Paul doesn't actually use the word love, but that is certainly what he is speaking about. Uh, He's speaking about his love for the Philippian church. If you, by any chance, you've got the verses there, you can just run your eyes across verses 7 and 8, and Paul says, I feel for you. He says, I have you in my heart. He says, you share with me in God's grace. He says, I long for you all. He speaks using the word affection for the church at Philippi. So Paul is actually speaking in very, very personal terms of his love for the church at Philippi. He's clearly got deep affection for this particular church. And we know, of course, that often in the New Testament, we read the phrase, love one another. I think very often we prefer it to be loved by one another, but the initiative is on us, where it says that we are to love one another. And in the first instance, the word love that is used in the New Testament doesn't necessarily have to involve our feelings. That's the particular Greek word that is used. When we read love one another, it actually can carry the sense of care for one another. It doesn't primarily have to refer to our feelings at all, but it has a sense of care for one another. And this is what we are to do in the body of Christ. We are to act towards one another as though we do feel love for one another because of the love of Christ. 
You see, Christ loves me. Christ loves you. Therefore, we are to love in the sense of caring for one another. And I put it like that very deliberately because I want to be real with you. When we say love one another, it can be that there's a, a personality difference, that uh, somebody we know in the church is temperamentally very different to us. Sometimes we just say the chemistry isn't there between us and somebody else. And to say love one another, you can't just, as it were, conjure up a feeling when the temperament or the personality or the chemistry is so different. But we can still love one another. How do we do that? By the way that we treat them. We treat one another as though we did feel love for one another. Because they are loved by Christ, you are loved by Christ, just as I am loved by Christ. Interesting thing is this. The more that you care for somebody, the more feelings start to grow. I remember a, a phrase by Michael Eaton uh, a number of years ago when he was preaching. Michael Eaton was uh, uh, a great preacher, sadly died last year. He uh, lived in Nairobi for much of his ministry, and he ministered in our church. He's actually a member of Westminster Chapel in London, but he, he ministered sometimes at Stonely Bible Week. Some of you may have heard him speak there. And uh, he came and preached once again. This wasn't at Stoney. I remember it was actually at our church in Brighton. He came to our church in Brighton and preached there. And in the course of his sermon, he says that he'd known a number of African wives who came to him over the years. And they said to him, Pastor, I've fallen out of love with my husband. And Michael Eaton said, whenever I get a, a lady who comes and says that to me, I say to her, Love him in cold blood. In other words, begin to care for him as though you loved him. And then the feelings will follow. And actually, I think that's wise advice. We live in a context where, you know, people say that, oh, get out of it. But actually, what you do is that you begin to care, because if you begin to care, then the feelings will follow. I think it was wise advice. Now, Paul's love for this church at Philippi had begun beyond care into feeling. And there is really deep affection that Paul has for this church. One Bible commentator speaking on these verses says this, The result of pastoral care is thanksgiving and joy for the people themselves, for all of them, even those whose antics seem to bring more grief than pleasure. Uh, and I think that's true. I think uh, if you care for people, you begin to feel deep affection for those people, even when they do some pretty silly things, to be honest. Uh, I've got a pastor friend uh, who, who told me this story about a guy in his church some years ago. This this guy uh, and his wife and family, uh, they were moving house, and they'd actually sold their house and completed on it, but they hadn't completed on the house that they were buying. So they kind of were caught uh, between uh, these two houses in this move. And uh, what were they going to do? But as it so happened, they had a caravan. And there was, I think, a farmer, it was, in the church who said, oh, well, you can come and be in this field of mine if you want to. You can bring a ca uh, caravan there and uh, 
be there until you complete. So that was the arrangement. So this guy, he, he with his family, he drives up with his caravan to this field, and there's a big hedge, and he's got to take a sharp turn into the field. But because of the, the caravan, he can't make the turn. He can't get it round. So this is what he did. He goes to his uh, uh, work drawer, and he gets out a large saw, and he saws the caravan in half, literally right down the middle of this caravan. Sawed it in half. Then he drove the first half of the caravan into the field, and then he was able to get the second half of the caravan and maneuver it round into the field, and then he bound it up with some form of sticky tape. I mean, what do you do with people like that, really? I'll tell you what you do. You love them. <laughs> That's what you do. You love them. As a pastor, I believe that there should be such love and such affection in a local church that actually it makes it almost too painful to ever leave that church. I think it's a wonderful example of this with the Apostle Paul himself. If you go to Acts chapter 20, you'll read there how Paul uh, said goodbye to the elders in the church at Ephesus. Now, again, this was a church that Paul was very bound to. Uh, Paul was in Ephesus perhaps for about three years. He clearly led the church, which he established at Ephesus. He raised up a group of elders. And I would say that Ephesus, as you read through the Acts of the Apostles, was the time of Paul's most successful and most effective ministry. But there came a time when Paul knew that he was saying goodbye to the elders of the church at Ephesus for the last time. And you read the account in Acts chapter 20, and it's very emotional. And Paul is saying goodbye to the, the elders of this church in Ephesus. And there, in verse 37, you, you get the, the feeling of it all when it says they, referring to the elders, they all wept as they embraced Paul and kissed him. So highly emotional occasion. Now, if you go to the biography of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you'll read there the account of him saying goodbye to the deacons at Westminster Chapel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, arguably the greatest preacher of the uh, 20th century in the UK, and he, he uh, was 30 years as pastor of Westminster Chapel. He fell ill at the end, after 30 years and decided that God was saying to him, time to finish your ministry here. And so he gathered the deacons. Nobody knew at this point. He gathered the deacons together uh, in order to tell them that, that was it. His ministry was over. He would not be returning at all to Westminster Chapel. It was finished. It was over. So you can imagine the kind of uh, atmosphere that there must have been uh, in that meeting with these deacons and 30 years of this powerful and effective ministry. And suddenly... Uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones is saying, that's it, ministry is over. If you read the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones at this point, and you can go to it and you can read it, one of the deacons said it was such an emotional occasion that like the elders of the Ephesian church, we could almost have embraced him. Now, isn't that just so English? <laughs> we could almost have embraced him. I thought, oh, come on, guys. You know, that is just so British somehow. But here, when Paul says goodbye to the elders at Ephesus, they embrace him, they kiss him. And then at the beginning of chapter 21, verse 1, Paul, it says about Paul, Luke is writing, after we had torn ourselves away from them. And so, for Paul to leave that church, to leave the elders of the church at Ephesus, he had to tear 
himself away. And my friends, I think it should be like that in a local church, that there should be such love and there should be such feeling and affection that actually if we ever have to go, it's as though we have to tear ourselves away. Actually, Sue and I went through this uh, early, early this year as it happened. We've been seven years at Citygate Church in Bournemouth, and we decided that actually, and in fact, we realized this seven, seven years earlier, even before we moved down to Bournemouth, that one day we would move to our son's church in Paul. I think a number of you know Matthew, who leads the Gateway Church in Paul. And after I've been six years an elder, volunteer elder in uh, Citygate, we were very happy in Citygate Church, but it was just that we'd reached a stage of life that we felt it would be good now to be with our son and with the family. And so we were going to leave Citygate Church to move to Gateway. I tell you, we had to tear ourselves away. You develop strong affection and feeling over a period of seven years. We had to tear ourselves away. The only reason for us going, and it is the only reason that we went, was because Matthew leads the church in Paul, the family is there, and we just felt, as I say, it's time for us to be with them at this season of our life. And it should be like that in a local church. That if we have to leave, it's as though we have to tear ourselves away. Now, all of us want to be loved. But the first and best thing is to obey Scripture, initiate it, love one another, give your love to others. And then the fourth big issue that we have in this passage is purpose. One of the very biggest questions of life, some might consider it the biggest question of life, is why are we here? What's the reason for our existence? What's the purpose for us being on this planet? Why are we here? And if you look at the Bible, you'll discover the purpose is neither shopping nor football. Right? Though I think some people think those are the purposes of life. What is the purpose of my existence? And the Bible actually gives us a very clear answer. If you don't know this, then check out Ephesians chapter 1 and the first half of the chapter. And three times Paul tells us that we're here to live to the praise of God's glory. That is the purpose of your existence and mine. And that's repeated here in Philippians chapter 1, because at the end of verse 11, it says that we're here to the glory and praise of God. And actually, in these verses, uh, uh, Paul tells us how we might live for the glory and praise of God. He tells us it's by growing in love, by increasing in godly wisdom, by appreciating what is good, and by living righteously. And he says he prays that for the Philippian church, so that the Philippian church might fulfill their purpose, which is to live to please God in every part of their life. The purpose is even there on a cosmic scale. Why does the universe exist? The Bible tells us the believer, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Or the heavens declare the glory of God. That's Psalm 19 and verse 1. The Bible is constantly magnifying the glory of God. I realized recently in a book I was reading that I somehow hadn't appreciated just how much the theme of the glory of God runs through the Bible. Of course, I knew it was there but it's overwhelmingly there. Once I kind of got that in my mind, I began to see it again and again. The Bible is overwhelmingly telling us about magnifying the glory of God. And I think we maybe get so used to it, almost we can miss it. God has this 
passion for his own glory. Why? If you think about it, it could at one level be almost like a pathetic obsession. Suppose I kept telling you about my glory. Suppose I kept saying to you, worship me, praise me. I mean, you'd think I was pretty sick. But God actually does that. In Isaiah 42 and verse 8, for example, he says, I am the Lord, that's my name. I will not yield my glory to another. Do you remember uh, back in the heady days of the World Cup when it really seemed that the English team might get somewhere? And we had got into the quarterfinals and the excitement that there was, it's coming home and all this that we were singing and everything was getting very exciting. And I, I, I read one of the newspaper accounts of the, the, the matches that had taken place and the players. And in this newspaper account, it said that our players are semi-gods. And all the praise was being lavished upon them. My friends, the God we worship is not semi-anything. He's the real thing. He's really God. And he's higher. He's more powerful. He's more knowledgeable. He's more everything. The ultimate being and treasure in the universe. And if men and women can praise football players, then God, who really is utterly glorious, deserves all our praise and all the glory. And there's this, our greatest joy and satisfaction will be found in living to the praise of God's glory, because that is the ultimate purpose of our lives. And we are tricked into thinking that other things are more satisfying. It cannot be so. In eternity, there will be unending joy because we will see his glory. And so we can begin by living to his praise and glory now. So this is a simple opening, it seems, to a letter. And yet as you go into it, I found that it really does address the big issues of our life. What do you want? Do you want joy? I think all of us want joy. Jesus wants us to have joy. Then grab hold of the wonder of the gospel. Security. You want security? Well, God has begun a good work in you. He will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Do you want love? All of us long for love. Well, take the initiative and love, care for one another. And what's our purpose? Why are we here? We're not here simply by random chance to live a pointless, empty, meaningless life. We've got a purpose, which is to live to his praise and glory. And these things begin now, and they will never end. Amen. Perhaps we could stand together and I'll leave some prayer. Father, I, I thank you so much again for the comprehensiveness of the gospel of Christ. I thank you that it touches really every issue. It tells us... Uh, where we came from, why we are here, how to live, and where we're going, Father. It covers everything. And Lord, I thank you the gospel even covers the universe. You know that one day everything will be restored, renewed, regenerated, and everything will come under the headship and rule 
of Jesus Christ. And there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And as we sung earlier on, we believe in the resurrection of the body and we will live in that resurrected universe to live to your praise and to your glory forever. Father, I pray to this church here, this family church here in Weymouth, Father, I pray that you will impart joy and a sense of security, Lord. I pray that uh, there'll be that overwhelming sense of meaning uh, and purpose, Lord. I pray that you will give these things to this church, Father, that this church will thrive, and Father, this church will be effective in seeing the lost saved, in seeing backsliders restored, in seeing the saints edified and built up. Father, we thank you for your love, and Father, help us to really love one another. Uh, Father, we can say that as a kind of catchphrase and it almost loses its meaning. But Father, help us to care for each other, even if sometimes there's a particular person that we don't have good chemistry with, that's not an easy personality for us. But Father, may we love one another because you, Lord Jesus, have loved them and you love us. And Father, we pray that this church may hold together strongly in deep affection. And as other people come in, they may feel the warmth and the love of this fellowship and might be drawn into the worship and the glory of God. Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Pray these truths, these big issues may be real to us as we go from this place today. 